Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Beach. I'm one of the pastors here at Scarlet City Church. And the first thing I wanted to acknowledge is, does anyone else notice how this light always sways? Okay, I, I talked like a month ago, like two months ago, I talked about how I always read scary books and I see scary movies. Like every time I see that thing swaying, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm paying attention. I'm assuming it's the air conditioner, but that's not as exciting. All right, so this morning, I want to open up uh, by talking about the only thing I think that makes sense uh, uh, to begin, and that's bear wrestling, okay, bear, B-E-A-R, wrestling. Now, you might be questioning, why do we start here? What is the point? But bear wrestling, okay, just, just follow with me, okay, it used to be a thing, Okay, from like the late 1800s all the way into the 1990s. It was something that happened in the Alabama wilderness. It's something that happened in taverns in New York City, in California, in the Midwest, all over the place. People used to get in the ring and try to take down a grizzly beast. Okay, one such bear was named Terrible Ted, okay? He was seven feet tall. And he was billed at 600 pounds. And it was claimed that he competed in 1,500 wrestling matches in the 50s and 60s. Now, you might be wondering, how did I come across this information? I'm not necessarily a bear enthusiast. I'm quite afraid of bears, as, as anyone should be. But, of course, I was on dumblaws.com, okay? Dumblaws.com. You guys ever been there? I found out that bear wrestling had to be legally outlawed in many states, particularly in Alabama. Now, I'm not going to talk trash about Alabama, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, my blood is wet. I got blood, blood in me from West Virginia, so I can't talk. But go Buckeyes. But the state of Alabama, okay, state of Alabama, section 13A-12-5 states that a person commits unlawful bear exploitation if they promote or engage any bear wrestling events, receive money for admission to a bear wrestling event, or buys, sells, or trains a bear for a wrestling event. Okay? This law outlaws the declawing, the tooth removal, the tendon severing uh, for the purposes of bear wrestling. Now, this sent me down a deep internet hole reading all about bear wrestling. I had to see the pictures. I had to see some of the grizzly, oh, I didn't even think about that, grizzly injuries, right? Literally, grizzly injuries. Now, what could this possibly have uh, to do with our topic today, right? Which is God's law, liberation, and the freedom that we experience from uh, loving God. When I first saw this bear law listed and explained on this website, I jumped to an immediate conclusion. My first thought was, this is crazy, okay? How is this a thing? Okay, these, this must be one of those goofy laws from like the 1880s that have carried over into present day and they just like forgot about it. But I was wrong. This Alabama law was written in 1996, okay? I didn't realize, okay, that this law wasn't made sort of superficially or, or as an accident. These bears were being abused. They were being mistreated, what the law created were, were safety measures of protection. It contributed to helping these bears stay safe. They were being harmed. They were being victimized. 
many of these bear handlers even, they weren't professionals, right? They were just grabbing a bear, maybe buying a bear on the black market. There was one story, one account of a man who barely escaped with his life after an encounter wrestling a bear. He required 2,000 stitches, 2,000 stitches. Now, I think we as people, we tend to look at some laws and we think, man, this, this law is like keeping me down, right? I want to drive as fast as I want to drive. I shouldn't have to be 21 to buy alcohol. I should be able to relieve my bladder anywhere I please. If I cross the street, I'm going to cross it wherever I want to. If I want to wrestle a bear, I'm going to wrestle a bear. But we also sometimes, I think, look at God's law, especially in places here like in Exodus, as things that are specifically binding. They're limiting us from who we want to be, of what we can ultimately do. We think of God's laws as bringing restriction and constraint. We ask, why doesn't God want me to enjoy the things that I want? Why are there all these rules and laws? I think these are very legitimate questions to ask. These are legitimate feelings to have which is why I think it's important that we engage with this topic as we talk this morning about Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. What are these commandments, specifically the first four which we're going to look at, what are these communicating to us? Are God's laws freeing or are they binding? Do they lead to flourishing or do they lead to restriction? Let's read Exodus 20, 1 through 11. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip there, or scroll to it on your phone. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. This comes from the English Standard Version, and I'll begin in verse 1, and we'll be going to verse 11. Starting in verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." This is the word of the Lord. So here we are. We're in Exodus still. We've jumped around all year uh, in different series, but we always return to Exodus. 
And we've had up to this point in Exodus 20, we've had a lot of story. We've had a lot of narrative, right? We're following along with what's happening. We hear about what God's been doing. We hear about the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians and they called out to the Lord for deliverance. We saw how Moses was raised up by God to be the deliverer of God's people, to lead them out of Egypt. And all of this has been chronicling God's redemptive plan and humanity's ultimate need of him. But right around Exodus 20, that's sort of where we often hit Exodus, and and this is a part that gets skipped over at times. We start getting into the law, we start getting into these really minute explanations of it, the nuances of it, all kinds of different stuff. I even wonder how many Bible readers would list the second half of Exodus as their sort of favorite, most riveting passages. But that doesn't mean, right, that doesn't mean that it's pointless or that it's useless. It doesn't mean that it's not relevant to us with meaning. It doesn't mean it doesn't have something for us, both for God's people uh, who received it in that time, as well as for us sitting here today. God's giving of the law to Moses and the Israelites is ultimately a declaration. It's a pronouncement of a new way of life, an ultimate freedom and human flourishing. That's a term that Pastor Jay uses a lot around here, human flourishing. The law is a reestablishment of God's commitment to his people. It's a restatement of the covenant that he has made between himself and humanity. This is an all-powerful and loving God making an agreement, making a statement, making a declaration to an imperfect, sinful humanity. This is really significant. It's really climactic in the Exodus story. The giving of the law has such significance, but today we're going to look specifically at just part of it. We're not going to look at the whole thing. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments, and we're going to zoom in on the first four commandments of the Ten. The Ten Commandments boiled down tell God's people that their chief end in life is to love God and to love people. And specifically, these first four commandments, they deal with, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, they deal with uh, uh, humanity's relationship to God. These first four commandments are this. One, worship no other gods before me. Two, worship no physical, carved, or created images. Three, take not the Lord's name in vain. And four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. These four commandments establish God's kingdom. These first four commandments establish God's kingdom. He is saying in these commandments, in my kingdom, in this world that I've created, humanity will experience freedom and life and liberty and happiness and flourishing by keeping these commandments. When you start with worshiping God, with loving God, with seeing God, with, and you experience the truest and most significant life in knowing God, the way that we were created to live in freedom and flourishing, God's law ultimately brings liberty. God here is establishing a baseline. He's establishing a foundation of what will mark his kingdom. He actually writes it out, right? He writes it on these stone tablets. He gives it to Moses and the people. It's a document. It is a set of written laws. 
Okay, it's not unlike the American Constitution, right? This is sort of uh, uh, nicknamed the law of the land, the most basic and elementary rule of living. We put so much weight on the Constitution that we actually have a body. We have the, the Supreme Court. Their entire job is to uh, uh, interpret and uh, understand what this document means. And it was written in 1778, okay? That's like over 330 years ago. But it has still stood uh, in many ways as, as a foundation of sorts uh, for everything that has followed it. And we see here God making a serious and significant statement in his own constitution. Love me, know me, regard me, worship me. This is to be humanity's most important reason for existing. And like the Constitution, all laws, all rules, all explanations of how to live must be judged against these Ten Commandments. It's to be the core identity of those who know and worship God. And in doing so, this establishment of his law makes three significant proclamations that we can observe. Three statements that both explain the impact to those who hear these commandments And they also reveal just how freeing and good loving God's law can be. So let's look at these three statements. Let's look at these three proclamations. We'll begin with the first proclamation, which is God's kingdom is greater than Pharaoh's kingdom. So Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler, the Egyptian king, he represents the deepest compulsions of the human soul of all of humanity, if left unrestrained, if left unhindered, we ourselves naturally strive to want to be just like Pharaoh. It's going to be hard to swallow. Pharaoh's lifestyle the, and the system of power that he sets up is one that stands against the ideas of mercy and grace, love, flourishing, and freedom. Pharaoh himself wants to control everything around him. He wants to be the supreme leader and commander. He wants to control. He stands before all of the physical and spiritual world and he says, I will rule. What I say goes. My will be done. This is ultimately similar to the human condition. The idea that we want to be God or want to be like a God. In Pharaoh's kingdom... The ruler holds the power. Pharaoh wields that power to control others. He is the authority over all. He is sovereign. But in God's kingdom, the first commandment says that he is the only one who holds ultimate authority. It establishes him as the only one who gets to be God. You don't get to be God. I get to be God, says the Lord. He's the only one that can claim ultimate authority and power Overall, there are no other gods before him, nothing that is worthy of worship or love the way that he is. He is the absolute top of the spiritual food chain. In Pharaoh's kingdom, the gods are used to create, and excuse me, they're used and created to support the powerful. The Egyptian gods exist to serve Pharaoh. He invokes them, he uses them however he sees fit. And he uses them to keep power. He consolidates power in himself. 
But in God's kingdom, the second commandment makes clear that God will not be used. He is an imageless God who cannot be co-opted for personal gain. The keeping of the second commandment means that God is not to be weaponized as a means to control people, as an avenue in which leaders can consolidate their power and authority. There are to be no carved images, no likenesses of God, because God is not a a physical being. He's a spiritual being. He doesn't have the body of a frog and the head of a dog, right? You cannot put on a crown that has a, a golden cobra on it to signify spiritual authority. Those are things that they did in Egypt. God cannot be made into an image and exploited for personal gain. In Pharaoh's kingdom, religion and power are used to control and exploit the weak. This again refers to humanity's basest instincts and impulses, to make systems, to create religions and gods, to serve them and their wants and desires. But in God's kingdom, the third commandment makes clear that you will not use the authority of the Lord to manipulate and control the world around you. You will be no Pharaoh. There will be no abusive leaders who claim spiritual authority that only belongs to God for their own personal gain. And finally, in Pharaoh's kingdom, production never stops. There's no rest. Those who are vulnerable, the common workers, the blue-collar workers, those who are in lower economic brackets, they never stop doing the work and bidding of the powerful. Pastor Mike talked about this back in March when uh, we were, before we even talked about the plagues, before we talked about uh, the people leaving Egypt, about how the slaves in Egypt, the Hebrew slaves, were given no rest, no reprieve. In fact, when Pharaoh got annoyed, he would increase the level of difficulty of their work. Work, 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 no break. But in God's kingdom, the fourth commandment sets limits on work and production. Rest is for everyone. The Sabbath is rest for everyone, especially the vulnerable, especially the workers, the servants, the refugees, the poor, the slaves. For the elite, those who already got money, it's like, yo, I'll rest, okay? I don't have a problem resting. I'll take some days off. But God says he rested on the seventh day of creation, and in doing so, he sets a precedent for all. Be like me, do as I do, right? You think that God needed to rest after he did the works of creation, like he was tired or needed a breather? No, he was doing it to set an example for us. And he restates it here in the fourth commandment. Rest and recover. This is for everyone. It says even your cattle need to rest. Choose some cut in peace. Now these first four commandments, they directly challenge the way of life that the Israelites had experienced as slaves in Pharaoh's kingdom. They make the proclamation that God is to be honored, worshipped, and placed first and foremost among everything. These proclamations, these commandments cry out that God will not be manipulated as Pharaoh did with his gods. God is to be enjoyed. He is to be seen and experienced. Human flourishing starts right here at this foundation with the right view of God 
and with worshiping and loving and being loved by God. This is who you will be as a people. This is who you are under the Lord. Start here and you will experience freedom and joy in a life lived the way it was created to be. But it's not just Pharaoh's kingdom, right? It's not just Pharaoh's kingdom from 3,000 odd years ago, right? That these commandments speak to. They speak directly to our culture today in 2018. The second proclamation that these first four commandments make is that God's kingdom is greater than our culture's kingdom. God's law invites us into a freedom that is different than our culture's definition of freedom. He invites us to live under a different set of values and standards. Our sort of American westernized culture, right, we're told that we can worship whatever God or gods we want. And the things that our culture establishes as worthwhile things to worship, money, power, acceptance, self-autonomy, sex, work, material possessions, even ourselves. When we sin, we turn away from God. We turn towards idols because we want to have control over our own lives. We want to be God. We want to be like God. This sounds familiar, right? This sounds a lot like Pharaoh. And this is the main strategy of what our culture, apart from God, tells us that we should be doing, right? We take created things, we take things that are maybe even good, and we idolize them. We aim our life at them. We set our hearts and minds and emotions and affections towards them. We build our identities around these created things. And we don't even have the option to just not worship at all, right? We can't choose to be like, no, idol, no idols, no God, I'm just going like, to not worship anything at all. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says very specifically that we were created, human beings, humanity were, was created at its core with the purpose to worship. We were made to be worshipers, purposefully and ultimately we were created to worship God. But part of our sinfulness, part of our imperfection is that we aim that worship at secondary lesser things that are put before us. In God's kingdom, these first four commandments call Christians to oppose our culture's natural idolatry. There's no middle ground. There's no third option between faith in God, which is allegiance to his kingdom and idolatry. We either worship the creator God or we worship created things. Tim Keller, a former pastor in New York City, puts it like this, and I think he puts it great. He says that sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. These first four commandments speak directly to our culture in that way, in the way that we naturally build our lives and meaning on anything, even good things, more than on God. God isn't 
establishing a kingdom based on rules and regulations, a do this, but don't do that. God's law is not keeping us from enjoying the good things in this life. They aren't taking the fun out of living in this culture, in this world, during this time in history. God's law, these commandments, are God's attempt at liberating us and freeing us from enslavement, from, cheap, from a cheap version of what our culture calls freedom. God's freedom is more freeing because it's connected to who our created selves are meant to be, our core design, rather than some created thing that's in front of us. God wants us to flourish, to have joy, to love, to pursue happiness and goodness and wonder. He wants us to see our worth and value coming from how he sees us rather than be enslaved to what our culture says is worthy and valuable. You aren't valuable because you look good on social media. You aren't appreciated because you have a great job and make a lot of money. You aren't important because you're educated or because you studied under a great teacher. You aren't cool because people like you or you have a nice car. You aren't esteemed because you've spent time getting to know yourself and you're comfortable in your own skin. Your value and worth comes from being created and loved by God. The supreme being in the universe before whom there is no greater thing. God himself loves you, he cares for you, he created you in his own image and wants to be in relationship with you. He wants you to know that, to cherish that identity at your core. He doesn't want to snuff us out because we worship things that our culture values, right? He doesn't want us to be far away from him. He doesn't want us to merely follow all the rules established by his law. He wants us to experience the freedom and grace and rest that is found in knowing him. We were meant to enjoy created things and the things that this world has to offer, right? It's not bad to enjoy created things. But the problem comes when we turn to them and worship them. He wants our faith and dedication and allegiance because it's the best thing that we can experience in this life. That is what these first four commandments are about. They're about worship. It's about seeing God who he truly is. It's about living within the boundaries of God's kingdom because that is much better than what the world has to offer. And that leads us to our third and final statement. The third proclamation that the establishment of God's law makes is that God's kingdom is greater than our own kingdom. One of my favorite songs is The Pursuit of Happiness by Kid Cudi. It's from The Man on the Moon, The End of Day. It's a great rap album. It's very weird. It's interesting, but it's also very somber and introspective. I love it. And in this song, specifically, as its title suggests, he speaks to the whole idea of, of, pers of, the, of the personal pursuit of happiness. Some lines from this song, okay? I don't care, I'm doing my thing. 
I'm going to do just what I want, looking ahead, no turning back. I'm on the pursuit of happiness, and I know everything that shines ain't always going to be gold. I'll be fine once I get it. I'll be good. You ever heard rap lines read in a more white way? This song, this, the, the core identity of this song, presents a struggle between pursuing happiness and pursuing things that we want, pursuing the desires and uh, the desires of our heart, the things that we want, and the struggle to cope with life and living, the difficulties of life. He discusses sorrow. He discusses night terrors, nightmares, the avenues of numbing yourself against things like depression, sadness, and disappointment. And in Cuddy, I think that we can see a lot of what we see in ourselves. It's a desire to pursue our dreams, a desire to pursue our hopes on our own, riding solo, taking our own solitary ways. We pursue happiness as defined by our own selves, isolated and alone. We live in our own kingdom, the kingdom of self, and it's exhausting. Living this life as our own God is hard. It's not who we're meant to be, on our own, apart from God, left to deal with everything that life throws at us. Be lonely and scary. We value self-autonomy, sometimes over everything, right? Believing that we can manage walking through this life without any help, any authority, any power, any personal presence. We can see religious systems, churches, pastors, God's laws as a means of enslavement. I'm not going to believe in any God that wants to limit my self-autonomy, right? I'm going to worship I'm not going to worship something that, that supports this idea that's outside of myself. Anything outside of myself, I can't support. But what we fail to realize is that in God's kingdom, the law serves us as protection. We think of God's law as limiting, enslaving. But think of the ways that laws can be good for us personally. Imagine a child, right, being told that they can't eat all the candy that they want. In the moment, right, the child is angry, right? Frustrated that the authoritative bourgeoisie parent has put the law down on them. They won't let me have what I want. Give me my candy. But allowing to have, uh, allowing a child to have all the candy they want that isn't a loving act of self-realization. Take Mountain Dew, for example, right? I love Mountain Dew, okay? I don't drink a lot of it, but it's good, okay? It's got that real natural lime green tint that you see just, you know, in the creeks of, the na of nature, of the nature, of nature. But, you know, I'll be honest, it's good, okay? You might disagree with me, but you're wrong. And if you got to pull an all-nighter, it's great, okay? It's really helpful. Maybe you just need a shot of caffeine. Maybe you like the taste even. Crazy. But if that's all you drank, okay, if that's all you drank all the time, your liver would be like, help me, okay? Please help me. I'm dying in here, okay? It's good to live under the law that says too much Mountain Dew is bad. 
I recently gave up sugar, so that, there's two back-to-back illustrations about sugar, okay? Need some sugar. This is mean off sugar, okay? Okay, get on, back on topic. Okay, the law, okay, the, the heart of the law, right? The heart of God's law is protection, okay? Personal protection given from God to the people he created and loves. God doesn't want us to walk alone, apart from him, nor does he want us to lose our identity in trying to keep every single law in the entire Bible. He wants us to begin foundationally right here where the Ten Commandments begin, worship me, love me, rest in me, allow me to be the driving force in your life. When we desire to live in our own kingdoms, in a world ruled only by ourselves, we miss the point of the first four commandments and the freedom that they bring to us and the God that we were created to worship and be in relationship with. As we end our time this morning, I want us all to think in a new light at the Ten Commandments, the laws of God, the parts of the Bible that we see as rules and regulations. God's law challenges anyone who comes to them, Christian or non-Christian, to recognize that there is no way that we could keep all of these laws. They reveal to us just how sinful we are, how unlike God we are, how imperfect we are. They're like a mirror, and we look into it, and we realize that we need a radical makeover. And it's not tan France that we need, but Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only one who was able to keep the entire law. He was the only one who was able to do so because he himself was both fully God and fully man. And he came to humanity not to impose more rules. He didn't come to get rid of all the rules so that we could live however we ourselves deemed. But rather, he came to fulfill the law. In Christ, we have a perfect fulfillment of the law. In his life and death and resurrection, we have the great establishment of God's kingdom and, pro- and the greatest proclamation of freedom that has ever been uttered. In Christ, there is freedom from enslavement to sin and there is freedom from enslavement to the law. Apart from worshiping God, we worship idols and we will be slaves to those idols. But being religious is not the answer to idolatry. Turning away from idols doesn't mean we turn towards worshiping the law itself. Mere religiosity and rule-keeping cannot be our new God. The good news of the gospel is that you are unable to be religious enough to receive the love and acceptance of God. Let me say that again. The good news of the gospel is that you are utterly unable 
to be religious enough to receive the love and acceptance of God. The only way that you can be loved and accepted by God is through faith in Jesus. So I ask you, will we be enslaved by sin? Will we live in Pharaoh's kingdom? Will we try to be God ourselves? Will we worship what our culture says is the ultimate human experience? Will the law imprison us? Will we try to earn God's acceptance? Will we try to live under God's law without Christ? We'll be exhausted by a life of religiosity. I need to be this. I need to act like this. I need to do that. That's like getting into the ring with a 600-pound bear and thinking that you'll come out the winner. There are no winners when you fight a bear, except the bear. You can ultimately not do what it takes to keep the entire law on your own strength. I want to invite all of us to experience the freedom that is only found in loving God through Jesus Christ. There is a great freedom in living in God's kingdom under his rule, under his established law. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be flawless. You're free. You're free to pursue holiness and godliness in a different way. Not because God will accept you, but because God has accepted you by faith in Christ. Come to peace, come to freedom, come to liberty, come to Christ. Let's pray.